Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Last month, the Respect for Marriage Act passed. And in the midst of that, there was a lot of Christian debate about whether Christians should be supporting that particular act because it legalizes same-sex marriage. But people like David French were saying, hey, this has good religious protections. This might be the best bill that we get, so we should give it our support. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is a university professor, incredibly sharp guy, runs a very large department, and he agrees with Keith and I. He holds a traditional view of sex and marriage. But in the midst of that, he listened to an interview with Joe Rogan and Matt Walsh. And it's mostly about the trans issue, but towards the end of the interview, they begin to get into a debate about gay marriage. And my friend said to me, it left him hopeless because Matt Walsh was defending a traditional view of marriage and he could not convince Joe Rogan. In fact, in a lot of ways, it feels like he loses the argument with Joe Rogan. And he said, maybe now's the time to give up. We're not going to be able to convince people of our position because there is no convincing argument. So I went on and I listened to that podcast And, you know, I think Matt did as good of a job as anybody could do just on the fly. But I thought this is not the best possible argument. I think that there is still a case to be made for traditional marriage in our setting if it's done the right way. Yeah, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with them, let's make sure we define who these people are. So Joe Rogan is the host of the most popular podcast in the world, right? He's based now out of Austin, Texas, and his style is kind of a curious libertarian. He sits down with people and interviews them for three hours. He asks lots of questions. The conversation meanders from one thing to the next. Sometimes they do drugs. <laughs> do they? Well, didn't he like famously smoke pot with Elon Musk? Yeah. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. I mean, well, he and Matt Walsh are having this conversation. They're both smoking cigars, and it's kind of a relaxed atmosphere. But Joe Rogan's a smart guy who asks a lot of questions. He is, I think, on the left. Like, he supported Bernie, but he pushes back against maybe the excesses of progressivism. And then you have Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh is of the Daily Wire. That's Ben Shapiro and Andrew Clavin and Knowles, those kind of people. And he has a podcast. He's most famously known right now for his documentary, What is a Woman? And that's what brought him onto the Joe Rogan show, where the documentary is talking about the trans issue. And so on November 7th, they sit down and for two of the three hours, they talk about the documentary and trans issues. But then the conversation shifts into marriage. And that's where, at least from our perspective, it got interesting. Yeah, you know, you might be wondering, why are we doing this? And it's not because either of us are Joe Rogan fans or Matt Walsh fans who listen to these people regularly. Again, a friend had to tell me to go listen to it. Here's the reason why. I think that this conversation is a microcosm of the kinds of conversations that people have around the dinner table who disagree. It's a microcosm of the conversation that we're having culturally about marriage and the meaning of marriage. I mean, Matt Walsh is famous for what is a woman. This podcast delved into what is a marriage. And as it turns 
out? That's a really important question that a lot of people are still debating. And so we're doing something different in this episode. We're not going to listen to their whole conversation, but we're going to listen to about 20 minutes of their conversation. And we'll stop it periodically to discuss what they're discussing and see what we can learn, not only about how our culture is thinking about marriage, but about maybe what's a better response to these kinds of questions in these moments. Yeah, you hear some Christians now who are talking about gay marriage and they say, well, look, the Bible doesn't support it. The Bible has a traditional view of marriage between a man and a woman, but they can't explain why they think that way. They just know the Bible says that. Now, my opinion is that those people eventually are going to embrace gay marriage. If you can't explain why you believe what you believe, the cultural pressure is going to become so great that you're just going to go along with it. Then you have other Christians who say, yes, I understand the Bible teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman, but I don't really care what other people do because their choices don't affect me. So what do I care if there's gay marriage? And I would call those people Joe Rogan Christians because ultimately that's kind of his philosophy is what you do doesn't affect me at all, which of course, we'll analyze in a little bit. But what I want to put in your head for just a moment here as we get started is there really are two definitions of marriage. And you need to listen for that here. How do they define marriage? What do they think the characteristics of a marriage are? What do they think the outcome of a marriage should be? Those two definitions are contradictory. You know, they don't go together. And so you've got to figure out what is marriage? What does a marriage mean? How do we define marriage? Because I think that our society is changing the definition of marriage. That's at the core of this argument. Yeah. And if I could add a second layer, it's not only what is the definition of marriage, what's the meaning of marriage, it's why does it matter? Hmm, To whom does it matter? Is this just an individual matter that has implications for individual lives? Or is this a social matter that we should consider more broadly? Okay, so let's dive in and hear a couple minutes from their discussion, and then we'll come back and unpack it. What about specifically about the marriage one? Well, do you believe that marriage, is marriage fundamentally a procreative male and female union or or not? You know, there's there's not really much of of a compromise position there. There's not a compromise in gay men that want to be married, they're in love, and they want to formalize their bond so they could see their partner if there's a medical emergency or if there's a, a death where you, uh, you know, assign assets to your loved ones? Well, that's not a compromise on w- the fundamental definition of marriage, because that, that's, that's the question that lies underneath all of this. Which well, marriage is, is a, a legal union between people who love each other, right? Isn't that what it is? And for, for what purpose like why why do we need a union why? because they want it to be solidified what? they want it to be carved in stone they want to say this is not just a person that i love this is my life partner right but why why as a society why do we need to solidify or uh make official a union between people who love each other like if you if you're with someone you love them then then why isn't that like why, why do we what 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 purpose does marriage actually serve in society what what is it doing for society but is uh, it it's it not necessarily for society it's for the individual's comfort if two people decide to stay together and have children and don't ever get married that's okay too i mean we don't have a law against that so if two people decide that they want to be joined in union and they want it to be legal they want to really commit i'm i'm committing so hard i'm going to bring lawyers involved and we're going to sign papers, and we're going to we're going to go over the terms of this. Mm. But I don't think it is just personal. It is a it is a public 
is also a a public institution. That, sure. Th- that's what we're talking about. You want the public to recognize yes. this. Um, if it was just personal, then we wouldn't even be having the conversation because people are, you know, loving whoever they're loving and it's, right. it's, 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 that's it. There's no way to control that and, and it is what it is. But what um, if any negative aspects would there be to people doing that if they're gay? Well, the issue is that from my perspective and from the perspective of most human societies that have existed in history is that marriage is the the context in which the the procreative union occurs Mar- marriage is the foundation for the family um it is uh it's something that is reserved for that because the male female union has this capacity to create life whereas no other union has that capacity and so it's a, it's a, it is a different kind of thing and it makes sense to call it something different it's like if a, you know if 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 human society were to collapse overnight and we all woke up with an amnesia and didn't remember anything about what happened before and and we're rebuilding society from scratch and we look around and we see that oh there are some couplings over here that have this weird habit of creating people and there are other couplings where there are no people being created we would probably call that something different it's a, it's a different kind of thing it's also more important to society. Like society needs that. You're, 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 you're going to keep society going because you're creating people. Um, and that's what marriage was. It was, the, it was the context for that procreative union. Okay, let's start with Joe Rogan. He makes his point over again and again that marriage is a legal union between two people who love one another. And if you're listening to this, I just want you to ask yourself a question. Do you agree with that? Is that your definition of marriage? Is that the Bible's definition of marriage? Is that a historical definition of marriage? Because it's key to his argument. The other thing that he says again and again is that this is about individual happiness. This is about someone being able to choose to live their life with someone so that they can be happy with that person. And it's really just a sign of committing. I mean, he talks about, hey, we're going to get lawyers involved, which I actually kind of laughed at because I'm like, well, maybe you do because you need a prenup. But <laughs> you get lawyers involved at the end of a marriage, not at the beginning, but I'll let that one slide. You know, we're going to keep circling back around some of the topics that were brought up at the beginning of this conversation. And one thing to notice is that Joe Rogan says marriage is a private good. It's just between two people. And Matt Walsh keeps pushing back against that and saying, no, it's not just a private good. It's also a public good. In other words, marriage benefits society. That's why it gets a certain status, certain legal protection, certain benefits, because it's within a marriage that human beings are created. Men and women create human beings, and that is the best place for those little kids to be raised. So, therefore, society has an invested interest in protecting marriages. Well, and this actually gets to the heart of the question. Why should a government take any role in legalizing or formalizing a marital relationship? I mean, there's lots of relationships that we enter into for personal happiness or expression, which is what Joe Rogan says it's all about. It's about me expressing my love. It's about my personal happiness. But we don't feel that need to formalize them legally. Like you don't need to go get a therapy certificate to announce that you're going to a therapist for your own personal happiness. You don't need a friendship certificate to communicate to the world that you are my best friend and there is no one else like you. In today's age, you don't even need a certificate to have sex with someone. I mean, there's a very, very important union that you're making with someone, a very important decision, but we don't formalize that expression, even if you're doing it for personal happiness. So why is marriage the one place 
where my personal expression and my personal happiness should be formalized by the government. And I think that's Matt Walsh's point. Well, it's because it's a social good. It's not just individualistic. Okay, so let's go back to their conversation. But what about gay couples who get surrogate parents to carry their children or who adopt children? That's very common. Yeah, it's, it's common, but that's not the, the union itself is not creating the, the child. But it's because, a man-made institution. We've decided that we should involve the law and to join a male and a female who create a family. Like, why would that be mutually exclusive? Why would that, why would that not apply to a gay couple? Well, again, part of it is it's a, it's a matter of definitions. So it's a, it's a little bit like the what is a woman question. It's like, what is, what is marriage? I mean, I... I, I <clears throat> but doesn't well, that seem like an easier one? Like two people who love each other. This is my life partner. This is the person I want to be with to the what, day I die. Let's get married. Everybody is happy. Just, Everybody celebrates. Why just two people? Why just two people? Well, I don't know. Why? Why only two people with heterosexuals? Because that's well, not always only, the case. Well, because only two people can create a, a, another person. You know. Um, no, nah, you can have another person involved, and they can have your kid too. I mean, isn't well, that right, what the Mormons did? Yeah, but only but only two people can actually create. Two people at a time. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, and that, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I would also, you know, if we want to call it heterosexual uh, polygamy, I, I'm not a proponent of that because, you know, when, when two people create another person, the person, the child that they've created now needs and deserves and has a right to um, be raised in a, in a stable environment with, a, with, a, with a, a mom and a dad who are living together in the house. That's what we should endeavor as a society to provide every uh, child and uh, children need they need both a child needs a mom and a dad that's that's the way nature has set it up right um so even this i you know it's uh, the idea of uh, like well two men will raise a baby um so are we saying that the, the mom is not we don't like, the mom is disposable here expendable we don't need the mom that's not what we're saying we're saying is it okay if two men raise a baby like if a single dad can raise a baby a single dad's not required if the, the wife dies He's not required to get married and provide sure. his son with uh, a stepmother. Yeah, he's not. Re he's not required. And right. Of course, of course, we wouldn't. We wouldn't require that. But, but so, what if that single dad decides after the mother's gone? You know what? All this time, I've actually been gay, and uh, really, I want to marry a man. Now, marries a man, still continues to raise the son. That's his son. Well, I think you know you can have a single parent households, right? But in a single parent household. And and the child can can be raised by a single parent, and the child can turn out can turn out okay and have a great and fulfilling life. But it's going to be in, it's going to be not because there's only one parent. It's in spite of that. That's a hurdle you have to get over. The child is still being deprived of something that uh, is important. Okay, so they continue this conversation about what is marriage, and Joe Rogan keeps saying that marriage is just an expression, formalizing an expression of love between two people. And what he says that I think deserves attention is that marriage is man-made, right? Essentially, what Joe Rogan is arguing is that marriage is a social construct, which sounds a lot like what he's arguing against when it comes to gender. <laughs> it's actually really fascinating. Like if you put the two halves of this conversation together, he doesn't want gender to be a social construct, but he does, he does want marriage to be one. And the point is clear. If it's a social construct, what he calls man-made, well, it's essentially Plato. 
So I can make it into whatever I want it to be. We made it up, so it's our right to do with it whatever we want. But I think the problem here is multi-leveled. First of all, as Christians, we wouldn't want to say that marriage is man-made. No, not at all. Marriage is what we would call pre-political. Marriage existed before government existed. In fact, marriage is the first human institution that God establishes back in Genesis 1 and 2. And so there is a primacy of marriage. Governments don't create marriages. They recognize marriages. So marriage is more than... Than legal paperwork. And it's why human societies, every human society or the vast, vast majority of human societies have recognized marriages. They didn't call it that. They didn't have the same paperwork, the same kind of laws around it, but they honored and privileged men and women coming together in long-term relationships to have and raise children. You don't even have to be a Christian, like you just said, to believe this. You don't have to believe that God instituted marriage. It is the pre-political institution. There is no such thing as a human society without marriage for two reasons. One, somebody's got to make babies, and those babies typically do better inside of monogamous relationships. That's part of how we're wired. But number two, to have a society, you have to have social structures. And again, throughout human history, the underlying social structure behind every government is the human family. What I find fascinating is if you go throughout history and you read uh, philosophers who get give out their utopian ideals of what the ideal society would be like, one thing continually comes up, which is almost always the dissolution of marriage. Oftentimes they'll suggest that the children should be raised by the government, that anybody should be able to have sex with anyone. No one will know whose father is who. You'll just know who your mom is because you can't get rid of that one. And all the kids will be raised together. Now, why I bring this up is very straightforward. Every time one of these anti-marriage projects is underway, sometimes it's in cults, sometimes it's in very weird governments, it never works. It turns out the society does best when we are able to identify families and see them as a valuable part of our social order, not something to be done away with. Now, when Obergefell versus Hodges was decided by the Supreme Court back in 2015, they end up using what I would call the Joe Rogan definition of marriage, and that is that marriage is primarily just about love. You love another person. And so Justice Kennedy, in the majority opinion, writes this, the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. So in other words, everybody is their own free agent. Everybody can do whatever they want. And you can't prevent someone from getting married just because they don't fit into the human institution as it's been constructed for centuries. Well, and Walsh brings up this point when he asks the question, can it be more than one person? <laughs> right. Once you've eliminated that it's man, woman to produce children, what else can we eliminate? Can we just eliminate that it's two people? Well, and this goes to a previous episode we did, the demeaning of marriage. There are now people who are getting married as friends. So these are friends, they're asexual, they have no romantic, erotic relationship, but they've decided that they want to live the rest of their lives together, and so they're going to go ahead and call that marriage. Now, in that case, I think a lot of people would start asking questions, because we value sex so much, or we want sex so much, I'm not sure if valuing it is right. We talk about it a lot. <laughs> we talk a lot about sex. And so when we hear someone having a sexless friendship marriage, we immediately go, well, that's not marriage. But that actually makes the point. We're redefining marriage. We're changing what it means. And when you make marriage just a matter of personal expression, anything can be a marriage. Why can't it be between three people or four people or more people? Well, when you heard Walsh say, well, why limit it to two people? I mean, Joe Rogan doesn't really have an answer to that. And you might say, oh, that's a slippery slope. That's never going to happen. You know, that's just people being extreme to win an argument. But in his minority opinion, Chief Justice Roberts, back in the Obergefell decision, brought up this issue. So it's not a slippery slope. The Supreme Court justices were saying, well, why limit it to two people? 
people. There's no reason to. And right after that, Freddie DeBoer in Politico, which is a mainstream news magazine, came out with the argument for polygamy. And not long afterwards, Andrew Solomon came out with the same argument for polygamy in The New Yorker. The irony of Justice Kennedy's logic is that he has to later on say this will always only be between two people because I think he actually understands if I follow my logic out, it will open up beyond just two people. And so I'm just going to say it right here as a blanket statement that has no logic, no rooting in how I've defined marriage. Right. If marriage is just between someone you love. Well, does that mean you'd be married to your mom? Does that mean you could be married to multiple people that you love? <laughs> You're making right? me think of this hilarious story. There was a guy who was running for governor in New York. I don't think it was a gag. He clearly wasn't mentally well. But this was before Obergefell. And so he's asked a question about gay marriage. And he goes, I don't care who you get married to. You can marry your wife. You can marry your husband. You can, I'll marry you to, do it to a shoe. I'll marry you to a shoe. He starts talking <laughs> about shoes. I'm like, actually, that's the point. And this is Walsh's point later on as he gets into it, which is that when we redefine marriage, it's not really a redefinition definition, it's an undefinition. We aren't moving away from one definition to another. We're simply making the definition meaningless because now anything can be marriage. A big part of Walsh's argument that you heard in the last clip is that married couples provide the best environment for their children to grow up in, that kids do better inside of a home where they live with their biological mother and biological father. And that's debated right now, right? I mean, doesn't Rogan say something like, oh, what about the gay man who raises a kid on his own? Isn't that okay? Well, yes, like Walsh says, it's okay in the sense that we're not saying that that kid is not going to turn out to be a great person. What we're saying is it's in spite of the fact that he's not being raised with his mom and dad. And there's studies out. Here's one by Wendy Wang and Brad Wilcox, who wrote what they call the millennial success sequence. And I think this is the key takeaway. 97% of millennials who follow what has been called the success sequence, that is, who get at least a high school degree, work, and then marry before having any children, in that order, are not poor by the time they reach their prime young adult years, ages 28 to 34. So the state has an interest in providing the best context for children to grow up because they will thrive. They'll get a better education. They'll have better family status. They'll be more stable, better mental health. They'll have better wages, better income, better life. I think if you take that, you can actually draw another conclusion from it, which is when you follow the success sequence, you make more money. You're probably not a drain on social welfare. You're a citizen who's providing, and they just laid out what it looks like. And it turns out it's this social structure that humans have done for millennia. There's a boatload of other research out there that shows that the mental health outcomes for children who don't grow up with a mother and a father are significantly worse than children who grow up with one mother, one father. We don't have the data yet on two fathers, two moms, because it's just such a new thing, but it's better for children. The thing that I really get frustrated with Rogan about is that, and he's going to do this throughout the argument, anytime Walsh makes a point, Rogan just starts throwing out bizarre outliers. Think about the logic. Do we use outliers to set norms? In law or just in life? Is that a normal practice? Let me give you an example. Murder, okay? Let's say someone says, hey, I want to rewrite our murder laws to allow for cannibalism. And they said, here's my case. There was a guy in Germany who put out an ad saying that he wanted to be cannibalized. He wanted to be eaten. Yeah. And another guy happened to be a cannibal and said, that sounds great. So he invited him over to his house. He killed the guy who wanted to be cannibalized in a very painless, humane way. Humane right? way. And the guy wanted to die. So yes. he's, hey, you come over to my house. You kill me and eat me. That's what I want. And so he did. He ate the guy. The world is weird. And so now the question is, does that outlier define our norm for murder? 
In other words, is it murder to take someone's life, even if they want you to? Well, normally, at least by law in the United States, that is murder. Even in states that allow for euthanasia, it has to be a medical procedure. There has to be all kinds of paperwork that has to go through. So should we rewrite our murder laws just so we can deal with these weird cannibalistic outliers? So you're saying that if I kill you, it won't help me to say that you asked me to kill you? (laughs) (laughs) No, this guy got put in jail. And frankly, he should have been put into jail. But see, this is the problem with Rogan's ethical reasoning throughout this entire thing is he's going to just drop outliers and he has no data to support it. And we'll show in multiple cases that what he's suggesting is often wrong. But this is how people often argue. Say, well, what about this? What about isms do not set norms? They should never set our norms. Outliers can't do it. Okay, let's hop back in to the episode. But even if that is beneficial to have uh, a mother involved and a father involved, surely having one parent only, even though it's not ideal, is certainly better than being in foster care. It's certainly better than, you know, being in in a home somewhere where there's no parental figure at all. And I would think there's a lot of people that are out there that are living a life like that, unfortunately. There's a lot of kids that are not adopted. There's a lot of kids that are in foster care. Wouldn't it be better for those kids to be raised by a gay couple who's married? I think every child deserves the best possible situation, the best chance that we can give them. And uh, so I would say that every child, we should be looking for a man-woman couple. And also keep in mind, too, that uh, especially when it comes to babies, you know, this this changes as the kids get a little bit older, but... um, uh, with with babies who are up for adoption, there, there's a there's actually a, a line five miles long of uh, of married couples that want to adopt babies, and they have to you know, they have to they have to wait. They're on waiting lists. Talk to talk to parents that have been through this. They wait on waiting lists for years. So um, this idea that there's a scarcity of man woman couples willing to adopt kids, I just don't I don't I don't think that that's even true to begin with. I think it's a little bit of a, a kind of a, a misnomer. It's foster kids that have the issue, right? Kids that are 10, 11, 12. Yeah, that's where it becomes. It becomes more of a challenge as, as kids get older. Um, m- most people who are adopting are, are looking for, you know, they want a baby so they can raise the child from as close to birth as possible. Okay, so again... We just got another whataboutism from Joe Rogan. Well, what about all these kids who need to be adopted? Shouldn't we allow gay marriage so they can adopt these children? Now, let's just say Matt Walsh is factually correct. When it comes to adopting infants in the United States, there is a line that is five miles long. I have many, many friends who've gone through the adoption process. It can take years before you get an infant. And so Joe Rogan tries to change it. Well, what about foster care? You know, maybe that's the problem they can solve. Well, it's not solving the problem. At the moment, there are only 3,400 children in the foster care system who are cared for by same-sex couples. To be clear, that's 0.008% of kids in foster care. So if your argument for the outlier of gay marriage is what about foster care, you aren't even solving a percentage point of the problem. Just to make sure we're all following the logic, Walsh says, hey, kids do better inside of homes in which there are married parents. So the Rogan goes, okay, then let's let gay people get married so that they can adopt or foster kids. And what you're saying is, okay, but that's not happening. First of all, there is a lot of heterosexual couples who want babies. And when it comes to fostering, gay couples just aren't doing it at a rate that makes any difference. Statistically, at least. Of course, it makes a difference in any individual kid's life, but not statistically. And statistically, it doesn't make a difference in adoption either. Only 1.4% of adopted children are in same-sex households. 
Now, that number could, I suppose, go up over time. But you see the broader point. If the logic is we need to allow for these marriages so that these people can adopt children because that's what's best for children, which is Rogan's argument, the facts don't line up. We are not seeing same-sex couples adopting or fostering at a rate that is solving any of the problem. And if the problem you see out there, and I think it's a very legitimate problem, it's a real problem, is that we have kids who need foster care and there's not enough foster parents, or we have kids that need to be adopted and there's not enough families to adopt them, at least when you get older and maybe with special needs and things like that. I think that's legitimate need to see, but the answer to that need is not gay marriage. The answer to that is to create policy that promotes that, that makes it easier for families to foster and adopt. Yeah, I think we need to create a culture that encourages adoption and foster care. And Keith, do you know what culture does a really good (laughs) job of fostering care for adopted children and foster children? Well, it's a funny way to put it because we all know where you're headed with this, and that is that evangelicals, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians, they are the ones who are doing the vast majority of fostering and adopting. Those are the people who are driven to help those in need. And that's, of course, because the orphan is one of the vulnerable people in the Bible that Christians are to look out for. Yeah, and I would love to see the church continue to grow in that. Let's talk more about fostering. I mean, at our church, we do a lot to try to support foster families, to create respite for them. We try to really support adoptive families. Churches need to be doing this kind of work because this is a problem that we can solve. But again, who's solving the problem? It's not same-sex couples. Actually, at the largest rate, it's that damnable group, evangelicals, (laughs) who are solving it. And in fact, I'm going to make it even broader. Might it turn out that the social institution of marriage that humans have done for years, I mean, millennia and millennia, it is designed in such a way that it gives couples a interest in having children. And so is there a shocker that when you put a man and a woman together and maybe they're battling with infertility and they feel a need to have children because that's part of what that union does, there's something about it that makes you want to have kids that they would become more interested in adopting. It remains to be seen whether that will be the case with same-sex couples. Does being in a same-sex union actually drive you towards wanting to have kids? I suspect the answer is going to be kind of moderate. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families.
Let's jump back into Walsh and Rogan. Do but, you think yeah. of gay marriage as a personal freedom issue, that you should be able to do that? If you were born gay, and that's who you are, and you meet another person that's gay, and you fall in love and decide that you want to be bonded in a union, isn't that a personal freedom issue? And shouldn't we encourage personal freedom? I think of it as a, as a definitional issue. Um, so what do you think it should be? I think of it as a definitional issue. I, I think of marriage as, as a certain thing. Which is the um, the context for uh, for procreation for the for the the building of the the nuclear family? What about people that get married that don't have kids? Are you opposed to that? What if they get married and they decide, you know, what we don't need kids. I'm going to get fixed. You get your tubes tied. Let's travel the world. Well, what do you mean? Am I opposed to it? I mean, I, I think that uh, that every married couple should be open to life. But what if but they don't want to? Are you opposed to them being married? If marriage is only for procreation and to bond a family together, what about people that are deeply in love that never want to have children? I, I don't think it's it's not only procreation, but that is one of the fundamental definitional uh, uh, aspects of it. Uh, of course, there's more to marriage just than that. And know? what about people that are infertile? They fall in love and they realize that they can have babies and they don't really necessarily want and to they, adopt. And, is that okay well, for them to be married? Because then you're, by definition, marriage falls into a completely different thing because then it's a bond of love. It's a union of love. Sure. I mean, that doesn't change the nature of, of marriage, though. It's a, it's a little bit like um, I say that uh, uh, what's the definition of a woman? Well, a woman is someone who by her nature can conceive children in her womb and bear children. And then the response is always, well, what about women who are infertile? Does that right. Does that destroy your definition of woman, and uh, it, it doesn't because, you know, it, it's, still, it's still a woman's nature to bear children. Not every woman will, and there will be disease and infertility and, and old age and all these things that will preclude that, but it's still, it's still of her nature to do so. Um, and I would say the same thing for marriage. I mean, it's, it, it is natural in a marriage for, for procreation to occur. It's not always going to happen in reality, though, but that's still, that's still one of the natural functions of marriage. And and uh, married couples who can't conceive children, there are other ways to um, be parents, like adoption, for example. If they want to. Right. Sure. But if people want to be married and don't want to ever have children, are you opposed to them being married? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't advocate a law that would prevent it. But would I, it change the definition of what their marriage is to you because they don't want to have a family? They just want to have a loving bond? I think this would be a, a couple that is rejecting... Uh, one of the fundamental aspects of marriage, and they they should be they they should be open to to life. I would hope that in the future they would be, but but isn't that just a personal choice? I mean, you can have a very fulfilling life if you just follow your pursuits and your dreams and your your interests, and you find someone that shares those interests with you, and you share time together. It's very fulfilling yeah, it's and a, loving. Yeah, it's a it's a pers it's a personal choice, and that I'm I'm not advocating for like a law that says that you you if you're married you have to have you have to have X number of kids. Um, but then why are you opposed to two gay people doing that? Two big issues that they bring up there, right? For the personal freedom issue, and then the infertility issue. Well, not infertility. Well, it could be infertility, but he's focusing on people who make the choice to not have children. Right. So, wondering if that changes the definition of marriage. But let's start back with the first issue that he brings up, and that is, isn't this just a personal freedom issue? That's the question that Rogan asks Walsh. And you can just hear his libertarian leanings. <laughs> In this, he has no way to have a moral structure or to say something is right and wrong, other 
then you get to do whatever you want to do. And so if there are people who want to be married, then you kind of get the sense that Rogan has no way of saying no to it, no matter who they are. Why can't a man get married to his mother? Why can't a daughter get married to her sister? I mean, I wish Walsh would have asked him that. I mean, he would probably say like Grody or, but that's actually not an answer. But he has no way to say it shouldn't be recognized by the law. This brings us to an idea that G.K. Chesterton floated where he said, imagine coming up on a fence in a field and you come up on it and you go, well, what's this doing here? And a person says, I just don't want this fence here. And so they just take it down, destroy it. Another person comes up and says, hmm, I don't really want this fence here, but before I destroy it and take it down, I better figure out why it was put here in the first place. Maybe there was a reason behind this fence being put here and maybe it's a good reason. And if I knew that reason, then I would be able to judge whether or not this fence should stay or go. And in a sense, that kind of describes two different approaches to marriage as it's been traditionally defined. There are people today who have come upon this definition of marriage between a man and a woman, a lifelong permanent union to have kids. And they've said, well, let's just tear it down. We don't like it. Let's just get rid of it. And what we're saying is maybe we should ask, why has this been put here? Why has this existed across so many human cultures for centuries? Is there something here that is good and valuable and we better understand why it's there before we talk about tearing it down? Well, we better talk about it. And the reason why is we are doing a nationwide social experiment that has literally never been done in human history. While there have been same-sex relationships in history, we have never had same-sex marriage. This has never been a norm in any society. And so we'll find out long-term what the consequences of tearing this fence down are. But we tore it down, like you said, without even thinking about it. The problem is for a libertarian like Joe Rogan, they always say tear the fence down. If I want it to be taken down, I have the freedom to take it down. Isn't that something about what it is to be an American? I have the freedom to rip down the fence. Well, sure, maybe you think you have the freedom, but the costs are tremendous. There's another thinker, Jonathan Sachs, who I really like, and he talks about how in any society, you have to balance order and freedom. Too much order, you get tyranny. Too much freedom, you get anarchy. And so in all social orders, you're balancing those two things. The problem with libertarians is that they want too much freedom. They don't value order enough. And that does create anarchy. And again, we'll find out what the long-term social costs of this are. And I'm not of a mind that, you know, social costs are going to determine whether or not we should do it. But I do think there will be social costs to this to tearing down the fence. But those social costs are important to consider when we're trying to make an argument about marriage without drawing directly from the Bible. Because what we're doing is we're looking around at how society has existed for thousands of years in all the different cultures. And we're saying, what causes society to prosper? And I don't know that we can say there's a direct link here, but you can't help but notice that as no-fault divorce increased, which we'll come back to talk about more in a second, and as gay marriage has been on the scene now for several years, that you're seeing a decline in birth rates. So we can't be surprised, or I don't think we should be surprised, when we see the effect, the social cost of promoting same-sex marriage that can't produce children. Okay, you made two great points there. The first one that we have not said yet is that this trend of tearing down the fence did not start with gay marriage. That's just the last and most recent version of it. It really probably began with no-fault divorce. It may have really began when we got rid of our adultery laws, so we won't have that conversation. (laughs) But there have been steps that we have taken to tear down fences that protected marriage in our society. And we're already paying, by the way, the social cost of high divorce rates. And it's not just birth rates that have gone down. Marriage rates have gone down. People are getting married later, and they're getting married less than they have historically. And we don't know what the cost of—well, we do know the 
cost of birth rates. Your GDP goes down. Your elderly population suffers. Just look at Europe. This is bad. You do not want low birth rates. But let me add one more thing here, which is this experiment that we're doing, and we have to wait to see what the consequences are. It's kind of like in the world of psychology. They used to use lobotomies to treat all kinds of mental disorders. Because it turns out if you stick a stick up someone's nose and stir it around, they don't have any psychological problems because now they're a cucumber, right? And we had to do this for decades before we said, hey, maybe lobotomies are a bad idea for treating mental health issues. I'm going to offend people. Right now, we are lobotomizing marriage, and we're going to find out what the consequences are. I don't really have to wait and see. I'm quite confident about what it's going to be. There's a cost to this. Okay, we'll come back to divorce here in a little bit because that's where Rogan and Walsh go. But for now, let's think about this question that Rogan is asking, and that is if two people get married and never want to have kids, he said one gets fixed or has a hysterectomy or whatever, so they'll never have children, are they still married? Or is having children so definitional to marriage that you're not really married unless you have children? I think Rogan thinks he's got Walsh here, a kind of little gotcha moment. Well, I think it's kind of comical. First of all, this would actually be impossible to legislate. If you're following the traditional marriage norms, children come after marriage. So you can't make children a qualification to get married. A prerequisite. <laughs> it doesn't work, right? It's setting time limits. I mean, there's all kinds of medical problems that you would have to... So it's a ridiculous idea to say that we should try to legislate people having children. But is there a difference between heterosexual couple who can't have children or who choose not to have children and a gay couple who biologically can't produce a child? Well, I think that there are some tremendous differences, and I tend to agree with Walsh. I think that marriage is designed in such a way that we should want to have kids. And just as me as a pastor, my experience, I've met lots of people who say, hey, I don't want to have kids when I get married, or who get married and say, ah, I don't think we're ever going to do the kid thing. And I've watched it happen over and over and over again that lo and behold, you know what they do? They have kids. <laughs> they have children. And that's made me ask a question, why? And I think I have an answer to it. I think, I think it's because marriage itself is designed to make you want to have kids. That if you're married for long enough, you'll eventually want to have a child. Here's an example. Take a corkscrew, okay? You could take a corkscrew and a bottle of wine, and you could go ahead and spin that corkscrew all the way into the top of the cork and stop right there. You never pull the cork out. Well, you're using the corkscrew, right? But you're not using it for the thing that it was made for, which is to uncork the wine, right? And so, of course, you can take the next step of uncorking the wine, and everybody will do that. It's the exact same thing with marriage. You can go halfway. Like, you can get married and start living together, but eventually you're going to want to uncork the wine. Eventually, you're going to want to have kids. Keith's laughing because of the sexual imagery. <laughs> I don't know what to do about it. Very vivid, very vivid example. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I didn't realize it when I added this into our notes. Are you That's, sure? Well, no, it's from C.S. Lewis. So I, oh gosh, well, it kind of works. Though. Oh, it definitely works. <laughs> Look, my point is you don't want to be like Onan, you know? That's his problem is he wants to have sex with Tamar, but he's not going to let her have the kid. I think that this is a really important part of their conversation and a really important thing for Christians to get their head around. Because I think that when we say, what about infertile couples? They can't have kids or people who choose not to have kids. I think then we go, okay, you're right. So therefore we can't use that as a part of the definition of marriage. And therefore we need to let gay people get married. So another example, this comes from Robert George and Ryan Anderson in their book. I can't pronounce the third author's name, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> and essentially what they say is, look, if you had nine guys around a batting cage taking turns in the cage, does that make a baseball team? 
And you go, well, no, but they're doing something hitting balls that a baseball team does, right? And you go, well, yeah, but they're not a baseball team. Okay, now let's say you took nine guys and you put them on a baseball team, you gave them uniforms, have name, they started playing games against other teams. Is that a baseball team? And you go, well, yeah, they're playing baseball games. But what if I told you they never won a game? Are they still a baseball team? Well, yes, they're a team who's trying to win games. They're ordered themselves to win games, even if they never actually achieve a victory. And so what Ryan Anderson and Robert George say is that that's true of marriage also, that a man and a woman who pledge themselves to marriage are ordering themselves toward procreation, even if they never win a game, even They've if they never have the a child, right? They've ordered their life around a family, even if they don't actually have kids. So they've suited up for the game. They can play the game, right? And again, like you said, they might not ever win. And, you know, we don't say that to be insensitive to couples who are infertile because they know how painful it is. It's an analogy. It's an analogy. But just to finish the analogy, remember, the gay couples like the people at the batting cage. Well, even heterosexual couples who aren't married can do things. They can have sex with each other. You can bat all you want. And so they're doing something that married couples do, but they're not married. Exactly. Because they haven't ordered themselves in this permanent exclusive relationship. You know, I think the broader problem that we're facing is that as we've shifted the definition of marriage, it's created a constellation of problems around marriage. And I think if you went back a hundred years, you would have been hard pressed to find couples getting married who said that they had no interest in children. You go back a hundred years, you're going to have way less divorce. A lot of the issues that we're facing right now are really a function of the marital culture that we've created. And what is that culture? It's what Joe Rogan has already described. Marriage is just a personal expression of two people who love one another that has been formalized by our legal institutions. That is a radically different definition. Well, we said at the beginning that everybody should be listening for the different definitions of marriage. And there's a senator from Wyoming, a woman named Cynthia Loomis, who's standing on the Senate floor talking about the Respect for Marriage Act. And she says that she is going to vote for it, even though she is personally against it. And she said right there in her speech that there are two definitions of marriage, a biblical definition between one man and one woman that she personally adheres to. But then there's also this new legal definition, which has more in common with Joe Rogan's perspective. It's just two people who love each other and want the government stamp of approval. What's even the point then? Why do do we even need this now? I just don't see how a gay marriage in any way damages a straight marriage. I don't don't see it at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. It just seems to me that people want to be... Look, if if you wanted to look at logic, especially in our modern society, which is pretty f-ed when it comes to relationships it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 percent of all marriages end in divorce anyway they don't make it you know if well, i don't know if anything would damage marriage and damage the institution of marriage is the option of divorce i don't think gay people and gay people getting married in any way shape or form changes a bond that you have with your wife it's just called marriage it's a human invented thing If we decide that gay people can get married too, I just don't see how it damages anything. I don't think it tears down the definition of marriage in any way. It just opens up the possibility that people who are gay won't be discriminated against. Yeah, I don't don't think that a a gay couple existing uh, directly impacts, you know, there's a gay couple and, you know, wherever, and and I'm with my wife in in our house. Like, obviously, there's not... um, but I'm talking about, I'm not talking about on the, on the individual level, I'm talking about on, this, on the, the societal level. Right. 
Okay, so that was a short clip, but why we wanted to focus on this was that now Rogan is laying out his ethical principle. Okay, so we all make ethical, moral arguments based on principles. And Joe Rogan seems to only have one, which is the harm principle. If it doesn't hurt someone, then it must be okay for you to do it. And one of the problems is nobody's really advocating for traditional marriage because we think that any individual gay marriage is harming individual heterosexual marriages. Well, that's the part that kind of makes me laugh. He goes, how does gay marriage hurt your marriage? And my first thought was, who has ever argued that gay marriage hurts me personally? Right. That's not the argument. But that shows how thin. I mean, he has paper-thin ethical reasoning. There's only one way that something could be wrong, which is if it harms someone else. And it's very individualistic, right? Because yes. he's not even thinking about a society. Because I want to look at some things here where we say that maybe these choices do affect society and therefore individuals. But he just thinks of us all as atomized units walking around. And what you do doesn't directly hurt me. So it must be okay. We're all autonomous, buffered cells. There's no way that what I do has an impact on you as long as whatever his definition of harm is, it doesn't happen. Now, I want to point out, this is a position you can only hold if you are a wealthy, affluent person. Here's why. If you're poor, if you lack affluence, you're going to have to rely on your community for a lot more things than a multimillionaire like Joe Rogan is going to have to rely on. For his Joe Rogan can pay for everything. Joe Rogan can live in this kind of self-created universe where he's paying for everything and he doesn't need to rely on anyone else. In his mind, what he does doesn't affect anyone else. But if Joe Rogan was living in a rural environment in poverty where there are people suffering from an opioid epidemic and people have serious health care issues around obesity, if you're living in that world, it turns out you're going to need neighbors, you're going to need governments, you're going to need other people to help you. And in fact, many of the problems that you're facing, like obesity or opioid epidemic, those things happened because of decisions that other people made, not to intentionally, individually harm you, but they made choices that affected our society and are now affecting your community. And this is where I wish Matt Walsh had kind of pushed back a little bit differently because it seems like, at least the way I hear it, is that Walsh kind of goes down this individualistic approach with him. He goes down that same path, which we'll continue to see played out as the conversation goes. But these are the same kinds of arguments that people were making about divorce. So no-fault divorce becomes a thing in 1969. And throughout the 70s and 80s, people were saying, look, why does my divorce affect you? It doesn't, right? So if my marriage is falling apart and we want an easy way to get out of it. Why is that a big deal to you? And what we found over the last many years is that it turns out that no-fault divorce and easy divorce does affect all of us. Yeah, so according to an article at the Pew Research Center, this is a quote, it says, Rose McDermott of Brown University analyzed three decades of data on marriage, divorce, and remarriage collected from thousands of residents of Framingham, Massachusetts. McDermott and her colleagues found that study participants were 75% more likely to become divorced if a friend is divorced and 33% more likely to end their marriage if a friend of a friend is divorced. It turns out that we are not little autonomous, buffered individuals who kind of live in our own little isolated universe where what you do doesn't affect me and what I do doesn't affect you. We are social animals. What we do affects one another. The social norms that we live out affect our neighbor. And this just proves it. If you're a friend of a person, if you're a friend of a friend of a person who gets a divorce, the odds of you getting a divorce go up. So it turns out your divorce might actually harm me if you see divorce as a harm, which I don't even think he sees it as a harm in the end. 
G.K. Chesterton once said, the obvious effect of frivolous divorce will be frivolous marriage. If people can be separated for no reason, they will feel it all the easier to be united for no reason. So our choices have a social impact and affect other people, maybe not immediately directly, but through the shaping of society. Therefore, society has an invested interest in trying to figure out where people prosper most, where does human flourishing occur, and then set that kind of culture up. And this is especially the case in legal environments. The reformers had this idea that laws affect us in three ways. One is that they punish evil. Another use of the law is that it restrains evil, right? If I know I'm going to get put in jail if I murder someone, that might actually stop me from murdering someone. But there's a third one that people don't realize. It sets norms. It helps people to identify what is moral and what is immoral. So when you live in a culture that has now set the norm of no-fault divorce, has now set the norm of gay marriage, it does impact how people live. It does impact what we see as being normal. For Joe Rogan, who says the only reason we should restrict anyone's liberty is if it hurts someone else, even that is an incredibly slippery slope because who gets to define what harm is? I mean, earlier in the episode, he's arguing against puberty blockers because he thinks that it's harming children. But what's the argument there? I mean, if the child wants to be trans and if the child wants to take puberty blockers, shouldn't the child have freedom? And I'm sure he'd say, well, they're too young. But what's the magical thing about 18? So once they turn 18, that's a magical number where now all of a sudden, according to Joe Rogan, you're allowed to have medical procedures. His logic will break down at some point because he, the individual, defines harm. I don't want to repeat everything we said earlier, but remember, if kids flourish best in a home with mom and dad, then society bears the negative outcomes for kids who don't grow up in that environment. It could be crime. It could be mental health issues. It could be doing poorly in school. We could go on and on down this list. But society bears the consequences of our individual choices. We are all connected more than we think we are. I actually don't think Rogan has a category for social harm. I actually think if you sat down with him, he would have a very difficult time imagining what you just described. The idea that we are in an interconnected system of relationships where what we do can hurt. I just don't think he'd have a category for it. Yeah, but the thing is that I don't think that Matt Walsh, at least I don't know what Matt Walsh believes, but I don't think here he made Rogan wrestle with it. No, he, he, he let didn't. him off the hook. All right, let's hop back in. I would agree that um, divorce, especially, uh, you know, uh, there's no fault divorce, rampant divorce. I don't think it's as high as fifty percent. I know that that's the that's often quoted. I'm not sure where that comes from, but um, it is high. It's like it's too high. And, and Chris I, and, Rock has a great joke about that. He and said it, those are just the people with the courage to get out. He's like, <laughs> how many cowards stay? But it's also it's also true that the advocates for what we call now traditional marriage, which I just call marriage, but the advocates for traditional marriage put themselves at a disadvantage by allow, especially in the churches, like allowing this rampant divorce to occur. Um, and then you've, you've already sort of given up on some a marriage is supposed to be monogamous and, uh, and permanent as well as procreative. Well, you've given up monogamy and permanence. And so now it's not, that's, that's, that's two of the three legs gone. And so now this assault was waged on the procreative part of it. And it was just, it was, it was difficult to, to withstand it because the institution had already been weakened. So I agree with you there. Um, my answer to that is to try to reinforce what marriage is, not to just give up on it entirely. And I, I still think you're left with this question of, like, if marriage is not what I'm saying it is, then what? Why do we even need it? What's the? I mean, you're saying it's a it's a man-made institution. Yes. But you, but you're also like the way that you're pre presenting it. It's it's a, it's also it's a totally 
meaningless institution. No. So they don't need it at all. No, it's not meaningless because it means something to the people that get married. So it's just, it's just a subjective, symbolic thing? I mean, what? Yeah. So if it's you're- kind of what it is. Look, there's a massive responsibility when you're married and when you have children to keep your family together and you raise and keep everybody happy and healthy. And there's great reward to that. Yeah. But it doesn't always work out. It's not, it's not a, it's people change. People are f***ed up. It doesn't, it doesn't always work. And so I don't think it should be outlawed because 50% of the people fall apart. Just like I don't think it has any effect whatsoever on a straight couple if a gay couple decides that they want to make it official. And that's what it is to them. It, it gives them a feeling that, that they're accepted and appreciated and that they're not discriminated against because they happen to be homosexual. Okay, so I don't want to spend a ton of time in the section because we're getting to the point where they're beginning to repeat their arguments, which I do for almost another hour <laughs> after this. But I do want to note this. Note how far Joe Rogan has come from his opening statement. This is a quote. He described marriage as a lifelong union between two people who love one another. And now, by the end of the conversation, he's totally done away with lifelong. He's saying, yeah, if people want to get a divorce, it's a personal decision. It's up to them. They should be free to do it. Have the courage to get out of a bad marriage even. So he's kind of celebrating it. He's gotten rid of monogamy. It's not just between two people. I mean, I guess three people can have a kid and they can live together. In other words, all this really comes down to, which he says at the end there, is this is a matter of self-expression and personal happiness. That is all that marriage is. And if that's what it is, it's nothing. You might as well just replace every time he says marriage with figgy pudding because it's a made up idea. Just, yeah, I want two people to be able to have a figgy pudding together if they're happy and they're in love. One thing I appreciate that Walsh said in that segment is that divorce has weakened the argument of those who advocate for traditional marriage. So let's just say Christians in this moment, Christians accepting divorce has weakened the argument because it's taken the permanence out of the equation and it has said we will redefine marriage into something that we want it to be, which is I'm committed to this as long as things go well. Of course, we're not saying the Bible says that all divorces are wrong, right? That's not the topic of this conversation. And of course, that wouldn't be true. But I don't think any of us are going to disagree with the idea that the church, Christians, have accepted divorce far more than the Bible would allow for. And so once you've started to redefine the permanence part of it, then why can't you redefine other elements of divorce? Well, and I think he's totally right. You don't get to a Burgerfell v. Hodges without no-fault divorce happening. That's the start. You want to know who ruined marriage culture? Heterosexuals. Heterosexuals. Obviously, we're talking about gay marriage, and someone might think that's what we're fixated on, because that's the topic at hand. Heterosexuals. We are to blame. The fault is at our feet. Marriage got redefined first through no-fault divorce, and then from Christians, even Christians, but people, heterosexuals in general, Christians too, who said, well, we don't really want to have children. We want to delay that or maybe never have it for all these reasons. And so, therefore, we've begun to undermine the traditional definition of marriage. And so now, when gay marriage comes along, where do you have to stand to make an argument? Well, frankly, this is already happening inside of the church. This is something that drives me absolutely bonkers. We are are willing in most of our churches to make people into members of those churches who have had unbiblical divorces. That drives you crazy? That in of itself might drive me crazy. What drives me crazy is if you're going to do that, just go ahead and let gay couples who have same-sex marriages inside your church be members. Because you know what? They've both broken their wedding vows. They're both living in a form of sin in their relationships. They've both done something, and it's really not that different from one or the other. Well, I understand your point to a certain extent. No, you just like heterosexual people who are divorced better than gay but people. I, no. <laughs> 
but I don't know that those are quite the same thing. I don't know that you can equate people who have an unbiblical divorce with a gay marriage. I'm not sure those are the same thing. Well, of course, they're not exactly the same thing. My point is, if you care about marriage culture and you think that one of the norms that needs to be set inside of the church, even through church discipline and church membership, is a healthy marital culture, there is no difference on that level. They are both destructive to a healthy marital culture inside of a church. Well, yes, I'm willing to say that once you start making accommodations for unbiblical divorces and heterosexual couples, it's part of that pathway that leads to where we are at the moment. But this is that I'll marry you to a shoe guy, right? Like, yeah, if you can be a member of a church and have the unbiblical divorce, then yeah, you can be married to a shoe and be a part of our church. At that point, we just don't care. Like, we just gave up. Yeah. I mean, you've brought up this topic and now (laughs) I feel like we've got to talk through it a little bit because you just dropped this big bomb in the living room. And the way our culture is set up and the way churches are set up, can you imagine? I mean, you ran ministries before. Can you imagine being in charge of saying, I'm going to be responsible for determining are these marriages that are ending based on biblical or unbiblical grounds? You would spend your whole life, you know, morning till evening investigating, asking questions of their friends. You're going to show up at their home to try to figure out who's telling the truth and who's lying. I mean, we live in a culture where it's impossible for pastors to figure out if divorces are for biblical or unbiblical grounds. Sure, we could say one's easier to discover and the other one's harder, right? So it's kind of like greed. Like well, you can look with... at someone and tell if they're greedy, but you can look at an act and say, is that adultery? I agree with your principle that once we allow heterosexual divorce for unbiblical reasons, then we create a pathway that leads to where we are now. I agree with that principle. I'm just saying that once you say, I'm going to now try to restrict that in my church and only allow certain people in who have the right kind of divorce is that's really messy. If you've ever talked to people who go through a divorce, that's really messy. It's really complicated. It's not easy to go, oh, well, here's why, and here's what you should do, and here's who's at fault, and this is biblical or unbiblical. It's not clear lines. I agree. I agree. I think it's really hard. I've had to have these conversations. It's absolutely miserable to figure out, but I am trying to press on you and press on anybody listening that we do have a double standard when it comes to this issue. And again, the broader point being, who started the problem? What was heterosexuals in our divorce culture? Okay, I agree with that. Yeah, okay, let's keep going. That was fun. That wasn't planned. (laughs) (laughs) No, it wasn't planned. You drop a bomb and then we'll just keep going. (laughs) Do I think it's the right choice to just get married and choose not to have kids ever? I I do not think that that's the right choice. It might, it's their their choice, but people can make choices that are wrong. Um, And you can disagree. How is it wrong if they have a fulfilling and wonderful life together with that choice? If their their thing is that they just want to have a bond between the two of them to just like take it to the next yep. level, let everybody know like we are married. If I die, my money's going to go to Helen. And if Helen dies, you know, I you know, I'm going to mourn her because she was my wife and now I'll be a widower. Like to some people that distinction gives them peace and security and makes them feel better about the relationship that they're both so committed that they've legally signed documents that say that they're bound by law and under the eyes of God or whatever you believe in. Yeah. They're, they're able to make that choice, but I think you're, re- you're still rejecting one of the purposes of marriage. And in the scenario that you just outlined, you're also deciding to live a really self-centered life you're saying what what? if you're not what if your work is very charitable what if it benefits humanity in a deep way what if you spend a lot of time doing you know health care work and 
you know, and uh, social work, and you're you're deeply committed to your community. It's not selfish at all. You're just dedicating your time to something I mean, other than raising new human beings. But yeah, that's you're a, dedicating your life to enhancing other human beings that are around you. That's a hypothetical. It I, is a hypothetical, right, but so but, is yours, right? Yeah, but I, I think most of the people that choose, like, we're not going to have kids, and and the and the the rate of uh, those rates are declining, um, and the age when people first have kids is also going up and, and all that. Yeah. And, and I, I, most of the people that are making these choices, I don't, I don't think it's because they're involved in charity work. I, I do think that it is more the, the scenario you outlined in the, in the, the first time around, which is just like, well, I, I, this is what I'm doing. You know, I have my job. I don't want to give it up. Yeah. Because there went your what about is American, right? Like what about <laughs> this crazy example I can come up with? The social worker who doesn't have kids because they're just so dedicated to their social work. I mean, okay, yeah, sure, sure, Joe. I'm positive that person maybe exists out there. Although I have to imagine actually people who are in social work might also be the kind of people who are interested <laughs> in having children. That's the last clip we're gonna listen to. Here's why I wanted to hit it, is because this finally clarifies Joe Rogan's definition of marriage. It has nothing to do with lifelong. He can talk about lawyers and legal and signature and whatever. No, it is fully about self-expression. It is fully and exclusively about individual happiness. And the only reason why the government has to be involved is just to give people a kind of public high five because no one wants to do this thing in private. They want to force others to recognize their union or else it doesn't count. So the government is asked to give a high five to gay marriage so that people who are gay feel personally validated. Now, let's just take that to transgender athletes who earlier in this episode, you go back and listen to the whole thing, Joe Rogan is very much against biological men competing in women's sports. But what's his logic to prevent it? If he applied his logic that he's applying to marriage to transgender athletes, he wouldn't be able to keep them out of sports, women's sports. Joe Rogan cares more about sports than marriage. Because he says your self-expression should allow you to do whatever you want to do, and the public should validate that. So if a biological male says that I identify as a woman and I want to compete in women's sports, why shouldn't we validate it by saying, okay, great, that's your self-expression, that's how you feel, that's who you think you are on the inside, and we as a public should say, great, go ahead, compete, do your thing. We will support that. He has no basis of saying. Here's the irony. Joe Rogan found a fence. And it's the rules of the game. Okay? <laughs> the GK Chesterton fence. Yes, the GK Chesterton. He found a fence. It's the rules of the game. It's fair play. It's people having a chance to be able to perform athletically in a fair manner. He found a fence. He found the reason for the fence because this is a ex-athlete. I'm being facetious, but he literally, I think, cares more about sports than he does about the institution of marriage. He can more clearly see why a transgender athlete causes harm or problems inside of athletics than he can see how changing our definition of marriage might cause problems or harms to our social order. So you have to ask yourself a question because for every person, it's going to be a different thing. Maybe they don't care more about sports than they care about marriage. But for every person, there's an area where they will find the fence. They will draw a line. They will say, I know why this thing is here and it really matters. And I think it's a real tragedy that we've reached a point as a culture where marriage is so deeply misunderstood 
that people can't even explain why it exists. We have no purpose. So much so that Matt Walsh is pushing a rock uphill, right? Everybody already almost de facto agrees with Joe Rogan who's listening to the podcast because we already live in a highly self-expressive culture where we think that everybody should be able to do whatever they want to do to be happy for their own personal happiness. One that takes us back to where we started and your friend texting you, maybe people who advocate for traditional marriage should just give up the argument because we live in a culture that doesn't have categories of social harm, doesn't have categories that we're all connected and that there are definitions that matter and that we can draw lines of what a marriage is and isn't. So I get his point, but I don't think that we can give in and give up at this point because people are going to see the consequences of gay marriage and maybe they will be open to change. But even within the church, we need to educate Christians, people who are part of our churches, why biblical traditional marriage is good, not just for us as individuals, but good for society. And therefore, when we advocate for it, it's like we're loving our neighbor, those who aren't Christians, because we're trying to set up the best society that everyone can flourish in. Well, and I think as Christians, we need to model that. Not only do we need to have healthy marriages, we have to stop being a part of the culture that ends marriages because of self-expressive reasons. Mm. I've met with couples, I've pastored couples who have gone through divorces, and it wasn't because someone cheated on someone. It wasn't because someone was verbally abusive or physically abusive to the other person. It wasn't because they were, you know, gambling all their money away. Like those might be some legitimate reasons biblically to get a divorce. It was simply because the marriage wasn't satisfying them. I remember sometimes it's sexual satisfaction that's not happening. Sometimes it's personal happiness and satisfaction that's happening. But if your goal, if your goal for marriage is self-expression and happiness, then once that leaves, and guess what? In almost every marriage, there's going to be points where you have to fight for the marriage because it's not making you super happy. And I'll say, on the other side of that fight, there usually is deeper happiness. I mean, I want happy marriages. It's not that I don't care about that, but that's not the definition of a marriage. We have to change our culture inside of churches so that people aren't getting divorces for unbiblical reasons based around this self-expressive thing. That or let's just change the vows, right? Like, I take you to be my wife as long as you make me happy, right? Yeah. Not through joy and sorrow, sickness and health. <laughs> Until but death do us part. <laughs> as long as you make me happy, then we'll stick together. And the moment that I don't make you happy or you don't make me happy, we will bolt. That would be a more honest version of marriage vows that a lot of people are genuinely taking today. But like you said, if you will work through the problems in your marriage, if you'll seek counseling, seek help from your small group, you can be a better place five years from now. Probably not in five months, but in five years, you know, barring that there's abuse or alcoholism or, you know, horrible things going on. But just in a marriage that has just lost its kind of love and feeling, you might say, you can be in a lot better place if you'll just work at it, work through it. At the end of the day, our argument for a traditional definition of marriage has nothing to do with discriminating against same-sex couples. If marriage is about personal happiness and self-expression, then yes, saying that gay couples shouldn't be able to get married would be discrimination. But we've never said that. In fact, most human societies have never said that. We have a very clear definition of marriage. It's a lifelong union between two people, a man and a woman, that can be aimed towards procreative ends. That's how most societies have thought about marriage, at least in Western post-Jesus cultures. That's how we have thought about it. And so we're not discriminating when we say that you can't be in a marriage with three people. That's not discriminatory. It's just a different thing. That's not marriage. We're not discriminating when we say you can't have a gay marriage. Well, that's just a different thing. The definition is a man and a woman. We're not discriminating when we're saying that you shouldn't get a divorce and that maybe in some cases, if you have an unbiblical divorce, you definitely shouldn't get remarried. That's not discriminating. That's just holding 
to the normal definition of marriage. And so you have to understand that. And the broader picture here is this. If we make marriage about self-expression, the social costs will continue to rise. And we should care about that because we love our neighbors. And God calls us to pray that the kingdom would come on earth as in heaven. And part of that means advocating for a healthy social order. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.